Hello and welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Alina Norms. Today we are going behind bars. It's 2003 and Rumi Hall is at the start of two consecutive life sentences at Stanville Women's Correctional Facility. Outside, the world she's been severed from, the San Francisco of her youth and her young son, Jackson. In her new reality, she's surrounded by thousands of women hustling for bare essentials. Chaos and casual acts of violence become a daily occurrence and Romy witnesses the humdrum, deadpan absurdities of institutional living. Such is the premise of Rachel Kushner's new novel, The Mars Room. A few weeks ago, I got a chance to corner Rachel and ask her some of my burning questions about this brilliant, sharp and and very unusual novel. Before I share that interview with you, though, um, I thought it would be a nice touch for Rachel to read to you a few passages from the beginning of the book so you can really get a feel for um, the conversations that follow. So here is Rachel reading from the opening pages of The Mars Room. Chain night happens once a week on Thursdays. Once a week, the defining moment for 60 women takes place. For some of the 60, that defining moment happens over and over. For them, it is routine. For me, it happened only once. I was woken at 2 a.m. and shackled and counted. Romy Leslie Hall, inmate W314159, and lined up with the others for an all-night ride up the valley. As our bus exited the jail perimeter, I glued myself to the mesh-reinforced window to try to see the world. There wasn't much to look at. Underpasses and on-ramps, dark, deserted boulevards. No one was on the street. We were passing through a moment in the night so remote that traffic lights had ceased to go from green to red and merely blinked a constant yellow. Another car came alongside. It had no lights. It surged past the bus, a dark thing with demonic energy. There was a girl on my unit in county who got life for nothing but driving. She wasn't the shooter. She would tell anyone who'd listen. She wasn't the shooter. All she did was drive the car. That was it. They'd used license plate reader technology. They had it on video surveillance. What they had was an image of the car, at night, moving along a street, first with lights on, then with lights off. If the driver cuts the lights, that is premeditation. If the driver cuts the lights, it's murder. They were moving us at that hour for a reason, for many reasons. If they could have shot us to the prison in a capsule, they would have anything to shield the regular people from having to look at us, a crew of cuffed and chained women on a sheriff's department bus. Some of the younger ones were whimpering and sniffling as we pulled onto the highway. There was a girl in a cage who looked about eight months pregnant, her belly so large they had to get an extra length of waist chain to shackle her hands to her sides. She hiccuped and shook, her face a mess of tears. They had her in the cage on account of her age to protect her from the rest of us. She was 15. A woman up ahead turned toward the crying girl in the cage and hissed like she was spraying ant killer. When that didn't work, she yelled, shut the hell up. Dang, the person across from me said. I'm from San Francisco and a trans to me is nothing new, but this person truly looked like a man, shoulders as broad as the aisle and a jawline beard. I assumed she was from the daddy tank at County where they put the butches. This was Conan, who I later got to know. 
Dang, I mean, it's a kid. Let her cry. The woman told Conan to shut up, and then they were arguing, and the cops intervened. Certain women in jail and prison make rules for everyone else, and the woman insisting on quiet was one of those. If you follow their rules, they make more rules. You have to fight people, or you end up with nothing. I had learned already not to cry. Two years earlier, when I was arrested, I cried uncontrollably. My life was over, and I knew it was over. It was my first night in jail, and I kept hoping the dreamlike state of my situation would break, that I would wake up from it. I kept on not waking up into anything different from a piss-smelling mattress and slamming doors, shouting lunatics and alarms. The girl in the cell with me, who was not a lunatic, shook me roughly to get my attention. I looked up. She turned around and lifted her jail shirt to show me her low back tattoo, her tramp stamp. It said, shut the fuck up. It worked on me. I stopped crying. It was a gentle moment with my cellmate in county. She wanted to help me. It's not everyone who can shut the fuck up, and although I tried, I was not my cellmate, who I later considered a kind of saint. Not for the tattoo, but the loyalty to the mandate. The cops had put me with another white woman on the bus. My seatmate had long limp and shiny brown hair and a big creepy smile like she was advertising for tooth whitener. Few in jail and prison have white teeth, and neither did she, but she had that grand and inappropriate grin. I didn't like it. It made her seem like she had undergone partial brain removal surgery. She offered her full name, Laura Lip, and said she was being transferred from Chino up to Stanville as if we each had nothing to hide. Since then, no one has ever introduced themselves to me by full name or attempted to give any believable-seeming account of who they are on a first introduction, and no one would, and I don't either. Lip Double P is my stepfather's name, which I took later, she said as if I'd inquired, as if such a thing could matter to me then or ever. My father-father was a Culpepper. That's the Culpeppers of Apple Valley, not Victorville. There's a Culpepper shoe repair seat in Victorville, but there's no relation. No one is supposed to talk on the bus. This rule did not stop her. My family goes back three generations in Apple Valley, which sounds like a wonderful place, doesn't it? You can practically smell the apple blossoms and hear the honeybees, and it makes you think about fresh apple cider and warm apple pie. The autumn decorations they start putting up every July at Craft Cubby, bright leaves and plastic pumpkins, it is mostly the baking and preparing of meth that is traditional in Apple Valley. Not in my family. Don't want to give you the wrong impression. The Culpeppers are useful people. My father owned his own construction business, not like the family I married into who... Oh! Oh, look! It's Magic Mountain! We were passing the white arcs of a roller coaster on the far side of the big multi-lane freeway. When I'd moved to Los Angeles three years earlier... That amusement park had seemed like the gateway to my new life. It was the first big vision off the freeway hurtling south, bright and ugly and exciting, but that no longer mattered. There was a lady on my unit who stole children at Magic Mountain, Laura Lip said, she and her sicko husband. She had a way of flipping her shiny sheet of hair without using her arms, as if the hair were attached to the rest of her by an electrical current. She told me how she did it, People trusted her and her husband because they were old, you know, sweet, gentle, elderly people, and a mother might have 
and a mother might have children running in three directions and go off to chase one, and the old lady, I bunked with her at CIW, and she told me the whole story. She would be sitting there knitting and offer to keep an eye on the child. As soon as the parent was out of sight, this child was escorted to a bathroom with a knife under his chin. This old lady and her husband had a system worked out. The kid was fitted with a wig, different clothes, and then that sneaky old couple muscled the poor thing out of the park. That's horrible, I said, and tried to lean away from her as best I could in my chains. I have a child of my own, Jackson. I love my son, but it's hard for me to think about him. I try not to. Thank you so much for coming in to talk to us, Rachel. It was a pleasure to uh, meet you. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, um, I absolutely loved the book. <laughs> um, oh. I thought it was really moving and um, a really kind of intelligent portrayal of it. And I think it, it really walked the line between it obviously showing the violence and the, and the shock, but also the nuances of the characters. Um, I had a few questions that I was just really curious about in, in the way you wrote the book. So I, I know that you did do research and, and into the kind of the real characters behind um, what was happening, but you you were just interested in the kind of prison system at first. It wasn't going to be a book in the beginning. Is that right? Um, yes, that's true. But also, um, maybe I should clarify that um, it wasn't so much that I did research into the characters. Mm. Um, the characters are produced by, you know, the 40-something-odd years of living that I've been doing. Um, the book is very personal. And the main character, Romy Hall, is a girl from my neighborhood and lived there and had adolescent experiences um, that I am intimately familiar with. And um, so many aspects of the book were produced just by having what I consider to be the fiction writer's very particular encounter with their own unconscious and thinking into kind of rudimentary questions about memory and the past and also justice and law and violence and um, trauma but humor and um, in terms of my interests in what I would consider not so much prison but simply the way American society is structured and particularly the class structure because it's uh, only poor people who end up going to prison and I grew up with some people who did end up going to prison and so I've thought about um, the way that the lives of my friends was shaped and kind of you know predetermined in, to some degree by something like destiny um, depending on you know their family circumstances and what kind of experiences they had when they were children and what ended up happening to them as opposed to what ended up happening to me. Um, I was destined not to go to prison. And that's not because I'm a good person. It's because I had parents who loved me and were educated. Um, so these differences are quite stark in society and that's clear to me. And as a citizen of Los Angeles and a citizen of California, I have always felt, um, I guess, hyper aware of certain kind of um, I guess the what you would call the carceral geography of my state. I'm thinking about where the prisons are and how large the court system is and the jail system and who is kind of being sucked into this criminal justice process. And I had decided in 
2012, about six years ago, that I wanted to learn everything I possibly could about what happens to people after they're convicted, because the court system is quite public and open, and any citizen can go and sit in a courtroom and watch a proceeding. But once people are convicted, they are put on a bus um, and taken up to a state prison, and those prisons are usually quite far from where they live, and they are um, hidden deep in the industrial farmland of California where we grow much of the food for the country. Um, and once people go inside prison, particularly if they're serving a life sentence, they are really, it's, an, it's a clunky word, but they are invisibilized by the state. And I wanted to follow people inside and sort of forcibly restructure my life so that it included these people that have been invisibilized. And that's what I did. And I have friendships, um, ongoing dialogues and correspondence with people who are serving life sentences um, in the women's, the big women's prison in California. And I did start writing this novel, but they're sort of separate but related tracks of life. Like the novel is finished, but the relationships continue. Yeah. What was your experience? Because I felt there was this um, uh, kind of thread going through it of this, this idea of, of who is guilty and, and who is innocent. And a lot of the um, like characters in the book try to justify the fact that they are either guilty or, or not guilty and, and want to clarify that. Did your your thoughts about the word guilty change when you were writing the book or maybe they changed before you were writing the book and that's why you wrote it or what? Then? Well, um, the, I, yeah, I mean, I think I had hunches and feelings um, before I wrote the book about guilt and innocence and I probably told myself that it doesn't matter what people have done because when you meet people in prison, it becomes um, quite simple really what the social mores are of not asking anybody what they've done, what they've been convicted of, whether or not they actually did the thing. You just know because that's part of being decent and sensitive to other people is not to define them by their worst act. But the work for me that was required to really disarticulate people from this moral axis of guilt versus innocence is much deeper than something like a hunch. Because the fact of the matter is most people in state prison in California um, have been convicted of what the state considers serious violent felonies. That's their language, not mine. But I think that for a middle-class person that that does require some thinking because like you know most people I would guess feel uncomfortable with what we call now mass incarceration putting lots of people into cages um, but there's this sense that people are there for you know like drug crimes or they're falsely accused and etc and the fact is most people in prison have committed acts of harm um, but that doesn't mean they aren't worth um, thinking about and empathizing with. And they're complex people. And maybe it's impossible to judge anyone else if you haven't experienced their life. Maybe it's just the territory of the novelist to be that kind of moral rel relativist because I'm not interested in judging people. I'm interested in understanding people. And um, I... I'm always thinking in terms of layers of complexity in regard to character and thinking about um, subjectivity and kind of trying to um, 
take on a subjectivity that's different than my own or build and form one out of uh, what I imagine to be that person's experience. And some of that comes from listening to how people talk and also just using my own humility to know that I can, to quote Thoreau, know no man worse than me. Um, I mean, maybe that's all a little abstract, but after a while, to just answer your question more pointedly, this um, opposition or axis of guilt versus innocence no longer seemed useful to me. It wasn't going to help me to think about people's lives and what's wrong with the way that we condemn people and structure society. Mm. So because also like on a larger level, it's only one layer really of the population that's going to prison. It's this quote unquote problematic layer of people that have no real active role to play in the economy, in capitalism. Um, They're at the bottom of the hierarchy. And so they can't, by nature, be born more guilty than other people. It's not that poverty makes you, you know, more violent. And like I said before, it's not my goodness that keeps me out of prison. It's the way that I have been nurtured. And so guilt and innocence no longer seems to be the really determining structural um, cause of, I mean, there, there's an element of chance. You know, you have to commit an act of harm to end up in prison, but you are far more likely to do that if you come from a family where you've been exposed to violence and trauma and where many other older members of your family have already committed acts of harm and gone to prison themselves. Mm. And do you think there's room as well for wider discussions about what an act of harm is? Because as well, there's the, the physical act of harm and then there's also... Yeah, that's such an insightful question. I mean, thank you for doing um, my own intellectual work for me. No, (laughs) exactly. I mean, and that's something that I thought into in the book, um, these questions of what violence is. It's an overused term, but it still means something to people. And I think there's a very, there's a visceral reaction to bodily acts of harm. um, But it's worth thinking into these larger forms of violence like people not having access to um, safe housing and decent schools and clean drinking water and job training and a sense of the future. Mm -hmm. And also the way that people's bodies are treated is so different in our society, you know. I mean, I can only really speak as an American, but a middle-class child um, is getting modeled for them from very early that their body is worth a lot, you know. And there's a lot of focus on health and the future and this sort of nurturing environment that has many layers and elements to it. And for a poor child, they are not internalizing early on that they're worth very much. And um, that message is given to them in many different forms. Mm. So how could they think that anybody else's body is worth very much? Yeah. How do you, um, because I I can just I can see how how just from the way you write how in depth you kind of you think about these characters and understand them. How do you you must be a really good listener. How do how do you practice that? Is that something you've practiced consciously over time, or do you think it's something that I don't know. I mean, I, well, it's it's mm. of interest to me to be a good listener. Mm. Um, but one thing I've noticed is that just wanting to be a good listener is actually not enough mm. to become one. And I think I could be 
a better listener than I am, to be honest. But I have always been interested in other people. I'm more interested in them than I am in myself. Mm-hmm. I think about other people. They take up a lot of my headspace. And um, there is something about being a writer and experiencing life through language and the cadences of speech, mm-hmm. I think, that attunes me or interests me in other people's speech. Um, but sometimes also you just get a drift somehow, like a tone mm-hmm. of of a character, like another person. Like there's a character in the book, Kurt Kennedy, who is the murder victim that Romy kills, and he's become quite fixated on her. And I realized I could... He doesn't appear until quite late in the book. Um, and I I didn't intend to write from his perspective, but I realized that I had to when I suddenly saw things from his point of view. Um, and what I saw was that he, you know, as I said, he becomes fixated on, on Romy, but he doesn't stalk her um, in order to scare her and terrorize her. And that, to me, was... Um, a sudden, quite um, distinct realization for me. Maybe it's obvious to other people, but it wasn't to me. I had only thought about what that experience is like from the person who's being pursued, and it's not very nice because it really can tear away your deepest sense of safety. But what I realized is that he's not doing it to in- to incur harm he is fixated on her because he's desperate to see her and he believes that he absolutely needs to see her and when i realized that i really wanted to write you know write his side of the story yeah um there's a there's a kind of 24-hour news cycle kind of thought piece kind of aspect to the way we sometimes talk about mass incarceration and and issues like this what and everything else yeah what made you feel like this this issue belonged in fiction as well what what layers can you add to that discussion by by discussing it in fiction well i'm not so keen on the 24-hour news cycle myself Mm. um i tend to reductive (laughs) yeah Mm. i tend to shut it out just because it's not what interests me and uh the way that like real life filters into fiction is somehow different and um, less reactive, I would say, or ideally is less reactive because it needs to be metabolized so that some kind of um, deeper meanings can trickle through. I mean, maybe it's a cliche to say it, but I think that fiction can produce sort of like the glitter of truth, but um, it's a less obvious kind of truth that comes through, and um, we need time to produce that. Like, I'm not somebody who's going to write a think piece about something that happened yesterday, mm-hmm. because as we can see now, um, the way the news cycle is moving, people feel differently about things six months on than they did, you know, six months before. Um, and with this subject, um, society has not changed recently. You know, like the person who's president now has nothing to do with the population that ends up going into prison. That's been happening as a pattern starting in the late 1970s. Um, California embarked on the largest prison building project ever undertaken in the history of the world. And that continued apace up through the early 1990s. Um, 
actually through the mid-1990s, and we are still experiencing the results of that now, although if you don't want to think about people in prison and you're middle class or above, it's incredibly easy not to. And once you start to see kind of like the penal net that's overlaid on society, it's really difficult to unsee it. So for me, the book was, it took me five years to write, was a process of seeing um, and thinking into what it, what that, what that kind of carceral geography means in the state and for many different people, for those who can see it and for those who can't. Um, um, a last question. Um, for somebody um, who might want to write something like this or, or something that's, you know, kind of, it, it has a political aspect to it, but it's, it's deeply sympathetic and really about humans, what, what one piece of advice would you give them for writing? I really don't have any advice for anybody else, <laughs> mm-hmm. and that's partly because the book for me was um, like this, you know, deep five-year rumination, and primarily on this question of destiny and what it means to give somebody a life sentence. And um, it required of me that I review all of this material from my own life and these people that I had known who ended up in predicaments that I myself didn't experience, but other ones that I sort of did. And um, I don't have any advice for anybody else about how to write a novel. Um, I only know, I guess, how I wrote mine, which was to, to ask these really rudimentary questions and not to force any answers, you know. I think that reducing things for me is where I lose interest and where things go flat. So judging people and um, also thinking that one has explanations, you know, oh, this is why people are in prison and this is what we need to do to fix it. I don't have any of those answers. I just really wanted to... um, think seriously and on a more philosophical level um, about these questions of justice and even like some theological questions. But um, for me, it didn't produce a kind of ethos that could be reapplied to somebody else's novel. That makes sense. Thank you so much for speaking to us, Rachel. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Vintage Podcast. Do check out The Mars Room by Rachel Kushner if you so desire. I would highly recommend it. If you want to hear about when these podcasts are released and also about lots of bookish goodies, giveaways and extra literary content, you can sign up to the Vintage newsletter. The links are in the show notes and you can also follow us on Twitter at Vintage Books. Thank you so much for listening. Do share this episode with a friend if you enjoyed it. And until next time... <laughs>